that the U.S. and the U.K. are struggling and Europe as a whole is struggling with the pandemic and China is not. It is very likely that China will come out of this. And the irony that it all started with China and they are going to come out of this smelling like roses is not lost on anybody. But that is the reality that we face with today. But we can't see this with any certainty. But nonetheless, you got to get started in anticipating what the world is going to look like. And you just got to get going down that road. So if people in foreign ministries are listening to your show, which I'm sure they are, they need to start acknowledging the fact that in 12 to 18 months, when the pandemic hopefully starts to ease, the world is going to look very differently than it does today in pure geopolitical power terms. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to China in the Caribbean. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Eric Olander, the co-founder of the fantastic China in Africa project. Caribbean policymakers often believe they have to recreate the wheel when it comes to China policy. They don't realize that China has been actively engaged in Africa for some time now. And the experiences of those African countries can be very instructive for the Caribbean. The two regions have some obvious similarities from being former colonies, relatively undeveloped, and of course, being majority black. But the Caribbean is relatively unaware of Africa in general, and even less so when it comes to Sino-African relations. In this episode, I want to open the dialogue between the Caribbean and Africa as it relates to what we can learn about China policy. In the age of Zoom and WhatsApp, there is no excuse for a policymaker in Kingston to be unaware of what China is doing in Kigali. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy my conversation here with Eric. so much for having this conversation. Rashid, it's great to be on your show. I'm really happy to be here. So Eric, as you might guess, there's not that much media from China that, that filters into the Caribbean. But of course, the Guangzhou incident from earlier this year really caused a big stir. And for obvious reasons, the uh, many Caribbean people come to the conclusion that Chinese people are racist against black people. Yeah. So I'm wondering how this same incident played out in Africa. Let's back up a little bit and talk about what happened, and then we'll, we'll go to the reaction. So this was around April 10th. Uh, so it was the first or late, mid-April is when it started happening. And, and the precursor to this is there were three events that led up to what happened in Guangzhou. The first one was a, a group of Nigerian travelers came to Guangzhou and were detected to be infected with COVID-19. And you have to understand at that moment in China, they were in the midst of their lockdown or coming, they were coming out of their lockdown, but they were in the, the midst of this real tense situation regarding COVID. Guangzhou was not like Wuhan or some of the other cities that had lots of infections, but they were all locked down. So people were very much on edge. They had been locked inside. And remember that the Chinese lockdowns 
were far more severe than lockdowns in most other countries. They were very tightly controlled, very rigid. So people were very much on edge. And when these Nigerian travelers were detected to be infected with COVID, there was this sense of like, oh, no, here it comes. We're going to go back into our lockdowns. And there's the infections are going to spread. So that was number one. Number two, there was an incident in a hospital which caused a lot of attention on social media where a Nigerian man was hospitalized. He was COVID infected and he attacked a nurse and this the photos of this nurse and he bit the nurse and he hit her and she had, you know, a bloodied face and it really riled people up a lot to see these pictures on social media of this Nigerian man who attacked a nurse. And again, this is just laying the groundwork for what happened. And then there was uh, then the last one was these restaurants. There were some Nigerian restaurants where uh, COVID was detected as well. So you have these three incidents of the restaurants, the travelers, and also the uh, the nurse incident that people that put people on edge. And then and then all of a sudden, the government around mid April kind of send out the signal that says we're going to start inspecting and cracking down on people who are in this what they're called as overstayers. They're in this legal gray area of their visas. They're not illegal, but they're not legal. They're in on one visa, but they're doing trading and doing on another visa. And the government kind of sent signals out into the marketplace that says, we're going to start cracking down on this. And all of a sudden then, that's what freaked out people who were, in, who were renting homes or hotel rooms to, to Africans in particular. They said, the government's coming. We're under this COVID inspection. They're using this crackdown on COVID. And so they started evicting people out onto the streets. They said, you know what? I don't want to have any problems with the government. I'm not, this isn't personal to you, but you got to go. And all of a sudden then, on April 10th, April 11th, photos started filling up on social media in, in, in the outside world, not Chinese social media, mind you, but on Facebook, on Twitter, and then also being shared on WhatsApp of mostly men who were then out on the streets. Remember, Guangzhou in that time of year was kind of chilly. So they were wearing big coats. It was actually raining one night. And it really was this sense of a loss of dignity for people. It was a loss of face. It was a loss of respect that you saw these young men sleeping out on the streets. And it just, it just infuriated people in Africa, in particular in Nigeria. And, and it just took off. And as you saw in, in, uh, in the Caribbean as well, it, it resonated as well. Because in part, the Chinese for a long time said, we are not like the Europeans and the Americans. We have never colonized a country. We've never conquered a country. We've never invaded a country. We're not like them. We were the victims of the same colonial powers that, uh, that, that terrorized you. We are brothers. This is the message that the Chinese tell the world and or developing countries, Africa, and I'm sure they probably have a similar message in the Caribbean. And I think there's this sense of disappointment for a lot of people that said, well, that's just all BS now, because at the end of the day, we're being abused and mistreated and discriminated against in China the same way that we're being abused, discriminated and mistreated in the suburbs of Paris, in the suburbs of Stockholm or in New York or where else. So you're just like, I mean, there's the sense of disillusionment that came out. So what ended up happening was that weekend of April 10th, April 11th, April 12th, just feeding social media and these videos of Africans on the street and, uh, and not just even Africans, there were some African-Americans, so it was black people on the street and also being pushed around by police and by undercover security. And there was just, it was all this tension and all these videos. And then the Chinese came out 
And they didn't say anything for the first couple of days. They just kind of let this go. And they were trying to figure out how to respond to this. Now, this would have been the moment when they could have done what McDonald's did. And I don't know if you remember this, but McDonald's, at one point in the height of all of this, put up a sign in one of their locations in Guangzhou and said, no black people allowed in the restaurant. And it got people pissed off and furious. And it was at the height of all this. So you can see it just riled everybody up. Now, McDonald's came in and said, whoa, this was a mistake. This, somebody got carried away. They shut the restaurant down. They put everybody into sensitivity training. They came out, and here's what they did. They said, we are terribly, terribly sorry for what happened. That was just some employees who got carried away. That is not our company policy. And believe it or not, everybody just kind of let bygones be bygones, and people aren't talking about McDonald's that much anymore as a result of that from what happened in Guangzhou. The Chinese did something different. What they did is they started to engage uh, elites, Pres- uh, you know, presidents, prime ministers, the African Union, ambassadors, and they said, hey, we're so sorry about what happened. This is, you know, we really regret. They, they did this high-level dialogue with uh, consul generals and, and, uh, and ambassadors in China, and there was working together. But what they never did is they never came out. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, or Xi Jinping, the president, never came out and said, you know what, we're brothers. And as brothers, family doesn't treat each other this way. Our, 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 you know, our brothers in Guangzhou got carried away in, in enforcing COVID-19 restrictions because we want to make sure that everybody's safe, but we shouldn't have treated you that way, and that was a mistake. We are sorry for that. They never said that. And to this day, they've never apologized for it. And it sticks in people's stomach, uh, you know, a bitterness that still riles the relationship on the civil society level, where they made amends with the elites. And mind you, not a single president or prime minister on the African continent condemned or spoke out negatively towards the Chinese during this whole incident. That was all handled at the ministerial level. So you had Jeffrey Onyema, who's the foreign minister of Nigeria. He came out and said, well, we're not happy. And he criticized even Ramaphosa's government in South Africa. It was Durko, the foreign ministry, that said, well, this is not a good thing, but never the president or the prime minister. So they were able to maintain that high-level relationship, but the civil society relationship, the media, civil society organizations, the guy on the street, they, they never got the apology. And I think that really has, that was an inflection point in the China-Africa relationship that is, they have never really recovered from it. And the Chinese don't really understand, in their mindset, what the problem is. You know, it's like you go to America, and you meet white people, and these white people will say, well, I'm not a racist. I don't have a, I mean, Donald Trump says this all the time. I don't have a racist bone in my body. You hear that all the time. But when you're a majority population, you never have to compromise for anybody and you live in an ethnic supremacy type of state. So in the United States, it's a white supremacy, and in China, it's a Han supremacy, where the rules are set in that kind of hierarchical order. They will say, well, we don't have any discrimination. We don't have any racism. And that was the government's answer to what happened in Guangzhou. And everybody could see for their own eyes what was happening, that they were singling out black people and not singling out white people or other foreigners. And everybody could see it. And instead of acknowledging the fact that there's discrimination and there's a challenge and we're working on it, they just said, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. And they kept repeating that. And then they kept saying, we are not racist. We do not have any discrimination. And people could see with their own eyes. Now, the most important takeaway from this, 
was that the Chinese and the guy on the street in China, he saw something totally different than what you were seeing in the Caribbean and what we saw elsewhere, and certainly what was being seen in Africa. Because they don't get Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp. They don't have any of those social media there because they're blocked. What they get there is a sanitized, controlled, censored view of events. So all of this drama that was unfolding in Guangzhou never played out in China. All that played out was the criticism from the U.S. and from Europe. They didn't even play the criticism coming from Africans. So the way that the Chinese framed this was, well, this is just the West trying to divide our relationship between China and Africa. And again, that was so tone deaf because it just dismissed the legitimate complaints and concerns that Africans have about the treatment of their people in China, and at the same time, the fact that people were disrespected. So this was a super complex issue. It's still very much a a sensitive point, because it wasn't that long ago. Uh, That being said, and I really want to contextualize this, that what happened in Guangzhou does not represent the black experience in China. Now, again, I'm not black, and I don't pretend to be black, but the key thing here is that you will hear from all sorts of students, professionals, long-term residents, that their life in China is actually far less contentious than it is, say, in the United States or in the UK. So it is very important to understand that the black experience in China is as varied, as dynamic, and as complicated as it is in, in, in any other part of the world. So what we saw in Guangzhou was bad and complicated, but it does not necessarily represent the total experience. And that's really important to have that bigger context. Yeah, I really hope that Caribbean people come to understand is actually a much more nuanced concern. But another issue that's pretty popular in Caribbean is the Chinese labor. So in the construction projects that the SOEs from China are building in like Jamaica or Trinidad or Guyana, a lot of them use primarily Chinese labor. And of course, the local companies are upset by this. This is not as much a concern in Barbados, given that a lot of the construction is already done by migrant workers in the first place from other Caribbean countries. But that being said, I'm sure this may have happened in Africa as well. So if that's the case, how did it actually play out in Africa regarding the use of Chinese labor? It's been one of these issues that has, it's a very durable myth that goes back about 20 years. So when the Chinese first came to Africa in the mid-2000s, early 2000s, 15, 20 years ago, they were new. They didn't know anybody. They didn't have the relationships. They didn't have the networks and whatnot. And so when they started building some of these early construction projects back in the early 2000s, they did bring over quite a bit of labor uh, because it was just the fastest way to get things done. But that actually faded out pretty quickly because the cost of flying over a someone from China, the cost of paying them, feeding them, securing them, and then kind of flying them back is far more expensive than actually hiring local labor. But in the minds of so many people, that initial experience just burned in. And so they saw these kind of Chinese pushing wheelbarrows, and that became the visualization that often a lot of politicians like Michael Sada in Zambia would take. And he used in his anti-China campaigns when he was running for president, he said, when I become president, we're never going to have a Chinese person pushing a wheelbarrow. And it really stuck in the imagination. And the reason why I say it stuck in the imagination is because the evidence today does not bear out that at all. 
the research in Africa over the past five to six years, there's been a new survey by the School of Oriental and African Studies. There's been research by Development Reimagined, which is a consultancy. There's been so many surveys done of this. There's a pair of scholars in Hong Kong, Barry Soutman and Yen Hai Rong, who've gone to multiple African countries, looked at the labor dynamic. And what they come up with consistently, and all the data reinforces, each study reinforces the other, is that between 85 to 93, 94% of the labor composition on Chinese construction projects is locally hired. The 15 to fit around 15% tend to be engineers, white collar specialty workers. But in the minds of so many people, it is still very pervasive. Now, I don't know what the situation is like in the Caribbean, so I will admit ignorance on that. But in Africa, if you talk to the average guy on the street, they will be convinced that it's mostly Chinese labor, when in fact, it's actually not. So one of the things that I would recommend to your listeners is to avoid jumping to any conclusions, uh, that oftentimes there are misperceptions about Chinese labor. So for example, white-collar workers will oftentimes live in conditions uh, that are consistent with labor conditions, so dormitories. So it's hard when you pass by a work site and you'll see barbed wire and you'll see these kind of very regimented types of routines that they have. So a lot of people thought, for example, in Africa that the Chinese were bringing over prison laborers, prisoners to work on. And this this is still a very, very common misperception. And you'll ask people, you say, well, how do you know those are prisoners? Say, well, first of all, it's all anecdotal. Say, well, my friend told me. That's number one. Or I see them. They're all dressed in the same uniform. They, they live in these kind of very, you know, bare bones kind of dormitory shacks. They have barbed wire. They're locked inside. They're doing exercises like they're in jail. That's if you've been to any Chinese construction site in China. <laughs> I mean, you've been to, it's exactly the way they live. They wear uniforms. They do exercises. And when you talk to the Chinese project managers, and I've had a chance to talk to a number of them, in Africa, I said, why do you guys put the exactly. barbed wire up and why do you make it look like a fortress in here? Mm-hmm. He said, well, it's not to keep the people in, it's to keep the outsiders out. They're afraid of their equipment being stolen, they're afraid of their materials being robbed, and they're afraid for their security oftentimes. So they don't have any sensitivity, cultural sensitivity, as to what that optics looks like when they make these kind of little fortresses around their projects. But to others on the outside, they go, well, they have no reason to be afraid of me. I'm just walking here and going to work. And I walk by a Chinese construction site and it looks like they've got a jail in there. So the perceptions lead a lot of people to actually think that those are prisoners. Also, because they can't tell the difference oftentimes between a white collar and a blue collar worker. That Huawei engineer, it's one of the amazing things. He may have a master's, but he will sleep on the jungle floor to get that cell tower up in Katanga province in Congo. And you would think a white guy would never do that. And so, again, it goes back a little bit to their orientation that their definition of foreigners oftentimes is a white foreigner who lives in a five-star hotel in nice, comfy, cushy conditions. They're not always accustomed to the Chinese who will live in conditions sometimes equal or worse than they do. And that's, that kind of throws people for a, a little bit of a, of a twist. But if you've seen any construction site in China, you will see the similarities to the construction sites in the Caribbean and also in Africa. They're just bringing over the same methods that they do there, and that is shocking to a lot of people, and they don't understand it. But for the most part, the costs are prohibitive now of bringing Chinese workers around the world. It is very, very expensive to do that. Chinese labor is not as cheap as it used to be. One of the other misperceptions that people have about China is that they're overpopulated and they're trying to get rid of their 
their people. They have too many people in China. That's actually not the case at all. In fact, the big problem that they have in China now is underpopulation because of the one China policy for so one child policy for so many years, they literally have too few young people and way too many old people. I mean, it is a demographic crisis in China. So they don't have too many people. They have actually way, they have a shortage of young people. So they don't need to export. And so people, the wages are going up in China because there's a demand for labor. So people have an outdated, antiquated thinking of what China is in terms of, of labor and things like that. Hmm. On the, on the point of antiquated thinking, it seems that a lot of Caribbean governments can't really see how the geopolitical situation is going to play out now, especially because of the pandemic. And that has created this really large information deficit that they've not been trying to fill as fast as they should. And that just seems like a very deep problem. We can't see it. I think you've made a really interesting point here. We're all in the dark right now. And the reason why we're in the dark is because the pandemic is going to change everything. So while these trends that I've been talking about, they've been underway for a long time. But, but COVID now is an accelerant. It's just, it, you know, it's just gasoline that's just been lit. And that's taking a process that may have taken 10 years and it's, gonna, it's you know, boiling it down now to, to one year. And we don't know what the world's going to be like on the other end of this pandemic. But one of the things we do know, and Farid Zakaria is writing in his new book in the post-pandemic world, that pandemics have consequences. Empires and powers shift because of plagues and pandemics throughout history. We know that. And I think we're seeing what's happening in the United States reveal that the United States is not going to come out of this pandemic stronger than it is when it went in. Okay, that I think that's a safe statement to say that has no judgment on it. But we're at a quarter of a million people dead. We're at eight, nine million people infected. We're at a political system that is rotting from the inside. And the pandemic is not helping that situation. Europe is facing a similar difficulty. Now, China, for example, is coming out of this stronger, probably. So if you are sitting in the foreign ministry of Jamaica or Barbados or Turks and Caicos, and you just see that, those, that data point right there, that the U.S. and the U.K. are struggling, and Europe as a whole is struggling with the pandemic, and China is not. It is very likely that China will come out of this, and the irony that it all started with China, and they are going to come out of this smelling like roses, is not lost on anybody. But that is the reality that we face with today. But we can't see this with any certainty, but nonetheless, you got to get started in anticipating what the world is going to look like, and you just got to get going down that road. So if people in foreign ministries are listening to your show, which I'm sure they are, they need to start acknowledging the fact that in 12 to 18 months, when the pandemic hopefully starts to ease, the world is going to look very differently than it does today in pure geopolitical power terms. Hmm. You know, it seems like on the Chinese side, it's also a really big gap of knowledge as well, how they can't really properly see or assess America. Because even when I talk to friends or people I know that work in foreign policy in China, and they went to the top school, for example, like Beida or Fudan, they don't actually have a very robust understanding of America either. And that, that seems to be still so strange. And, and I gave a lecture at Fudan University to the Graduate School of International Relations. And I said, how do you know about the United States? How much do you know about us? 
And, and it's amazing because people really feel like because they watch American television and movies, Big Bang Theory, that they know about us as a people and our culture. I said, well, okay, you know, you Chinese people, you're constantly lecturing us that if we're going to come to China, we have to speak the language, we have to know 5,000 years of history, we have to understand your, cult- your customs, we have to build relationships. And to be honest with you, I think we as Americans have actually done a pretty good job at that. Every major American university has a Chinese language program. Every major American university has, you know, graduates tons of PhDs in Chinese history. We send thousands of students over. American business has been in China for decades. We have a vibrant American community. I think we've made that effort. But let me ask you, graduate students at Fudan University in Shanghai, how much do you really know about my culture and my people? And they kind of looked at me in this very perplexed way. I'm like, what do you mean? And number one, they come off arrogant AF. I mean, it is just well, you only have 250 years of history. And you're like, what? That is a common refrain that you hear from the Chinese about the United States, that because our country is so young, we have no history and we have no culture. And I'm like, let me give you some really unvarnished advice. Never tell an American person that because it is so rude, disrespectful, and arrogant that you think because you've got 5,000 years or 4,000 years of history that somehow you're better than we are. Well, forget you then. We have nothing to talk about if that's your attitude. They were kind of surprised when I said that. Number two, I said, how do you actually know about our people? We're 340 million Americans. We are multiple languages, multiple cultures, multiple. How, what do you do to learn about us? And they looked at me in a very complex way because I said there are real geopolitical consequences to your ignorance. That you are making strategic errors in your dealings with the United States because you don't know fundamentally who we are. You did not understand what happened in the Trump election. You don't understand the diversity that we have. You don't understand why we are motivated by the ideals that we have. And I said, well, how do you learn about us? If we're learning about you, because I speak Chinese, I live over here, a lot of us are over here, what are you doing? And they looked at me in this very puzzled look. And I said, let me guess, the way that you learn about America is by watching Big Bang Theory. And they go, yeah, 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 we watch American movies and TV shows. They, got, they, they thought I was letting them off the hook. And I said, that is rude, offensive, and stupid. I mean, really, okay? Because how much, because I told you, if I said to them that everything that I'm learning about Chinese culture is coming from ITE, ITE is the kind of YouTube of China, you would think I'm a joke. You say you can't learn about Chinese culture and all the nuances and details of it from online videos. I said, well, you can't learn it from a soap opera or a movie because that's not real life. That's entertainment. That's a comedy. So they have a big information asymmetry as well. And, and one of the problems that they have is that even the students who study in the United States, too often those students will huddle together with other Chinese students, will sit on WeChat all the time, and never really assimilate. Honestly, it's the same way that the American student who goes to China does exactly the same thing. They huddle with other American students, they're on Facebook the whole time, or they're on Instagram, and they never really assimilate. So this is not uniquely a Chinese problem. But it is a reality that just because you study in the United States doesn't mean you know anything about American culture. So there are these asymmetries that are all over the place. And they don't know as much about us as they should. And we actually, I think we know a lot more about them than they know about us in many respects. Mm. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Hmm. 
I, I used to live in Cambridge for a while, um, Boston, uh, next to the MIT campus. I'll always see these small groups of Chinese um, students always hang together, always speaking Chinese, never actually interacting much with like other other people. And I find that kind of curious. And then I remember I had a conversation with someone, a Chinese guy, um, and he was and ironically saying that he, he understands America a lot because one of his favorite books is Meiguo Fan Dui Meiguo. Yeah. And he said that unironically. That's yeah. so, so strange. Which is, again, I mean, it's so pathetic. I mean, it's so pathetic. I mean, I don't blame the student, the foreign students for huddling together because, again, that's what all foreign students do to some extent. You're in a foreign culture. You don't speak the language. You don't have a lot of friends. It's hard to speak a second language in a casual environment. I get that. But the second point that you made is far more annoying because I've read one book or I've mm. read, I've watched TV shows and therefore I know it. And one of the things that you constantly hear is this disrespecting of American culture and history. And they, they, they don't really understand it in a very nuanced, textured way. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. And, I, and, and, and again, it's not universal. I don't want to paint everybody in that broad brush, but it is pervasive enough such that they are making real strategic miscalculations, much the same way that we've talked about how Caribbean stakeholders are making miscalculations about China because they don't know enough. The Chinese are making the same miscalculations about the mm-hmm. United States because they don't know enough. Eric, I could ask you many more questions, but I want to thank you so much for having this conversation. And if you have any final words, please share it. And also don't forget to share how people can get into contact with you and also find out more about the China Africa project as well. I want to thank you for allowing me the time to, to do this. It's really beneficial for me to understand a lot of the issues that are going on in the Caribbean. I want to echo the sentiments of your ambassador, Francois Jackman, who talks about that there are a lot of similarities between what happens in Africa and what happens in the Caribbean on racial issues, on asymmetric in terms of size, economics, trade. There are a lot of parallels. So I'd like to invite your audience to check out the work we're doing at the China Africa Project. Uh, there's a lot I think you can benefit from. We do a daily email newsletter, which is a deep dive intelligence report on everything that's going on. In, 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 in the China-Africa relationship. And for people like you, and certainly in the foreign ministries, this is one of these opportunities in these ways that you can actually start to just get faster and better about your knowledge on China in a very developing world, uh, oftentimes in a black context too, on these racial and cultural issues as well. We, we, we engage a large, diverse uh, you know, range of input from analysts and from, uh, from contributors from across Africa who oftentimes are not the traditional voices that you hear from think tanks and whatnot. We really engage uh, young people, women, and you'll see the voices that we have on our site are very, very diverse, and we're very proud of that, to have all those different voices. So we would love to have all of your listeners to start following us at the China Africa Project. You can follow me on Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I tweet every day about China Africa issues. And if you'd like to get in touch, uh, I love answering emails and engaging people in conversation. You can reach me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. Está a punto 
al centro Respira que todo esto de vivir siempre es un cuento Ponte adentro, cuerpo atento, mente al centro Siempre con prisa Ya no hay sonrisa Por la mañana me despierta el primer rayo del sol Que me invita a levantarme Me dice que el dolor de ayer pronto tiene que acabarse Por la mañana me despierta el primer viento del sur Que me exige levantar 